Welcome to Rockrit episode 24. I'm your host, Armin Savagin, late as ever. I'm glad you could join us. This episode is a bit of a departure. We're talking to music journalist Bill Kopp about his new book, Disturbing the Peace, 415 Records and the Rise of the New Wave, which is out on Hozak Records and Books. Bill reached out to me on Twitter and asked if I'd be interested in chatting. He was kind enough to share a copy of his book. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and so here we are. I confess I wasn't at all familiar with the label's story. 415 was a San Francisco record label from the late 70s, early 80s. It had a varied roster, everything from Rocky Erickson to Art Punk's The Mutants to new wave bands like Romeo Void. Some of the releases resonate strong with, strongly with me, others not so much, but I could probably say the same about SST or Discord or Alternative Tentacles. I think you will like the book a lot. It's a rich and well-told story, lots of fascinating details about the backgrounds of the label's founders, they're interesting guys, the bands themselves, key Bay Area venues, all about running an eclectic DIY record label on the cheap, and also how clueless major labels can be when it comes to supporting interesting music. Please enjoy this chat with Bill Kopp on Rock Rit. Can you tell me about... Well, tell me about yourself. You're a guy who does a music blog. You you blog every day, which is incredible. A lot of people associate music blogs with something that was huge in the 2000s and, and people <laughs> moved on to podcasts and things. But I admire the fact that you blog consistently every day, recording, like reviewing new records. Can you tell me about your music blogging? Yeah, um, I... Back in the uh, the middle of the uh, first decade of this century, I guess we call that the noughts or the um, something like that. Around 2005, 2006, um, I was an editor of a national music magazine. When uh, that magazine ceased publication, uh, I you know I, I had a, a pretty good head of steam in terms of uh, of, of creating. A, you know, new uh, reviews, features, and things like that. And I wanted to, to continue doing that. And so uh, I, I started uh, the Musoscribe blog. Uh, and um, initially, I was doing it five days a week. And then after a number of years, uh, it was like there was just so much material that I wanted to, to cover, so many things that I wanted to, to share with uh, whomever reads that uh, I went to seven days. And so at this point, there are... Uh, just over, I just passed the 4,000 mark on, on my daily entries and um, a thousand of those are interviews. What's the focus, if you had to describe it to somebody who's not read it before, what's the focus of the blog? Uh, my particular interest tends to center around uh, rock, soul, uh, and, and jazz. Um, I'm into other things as well. I mean, you'll 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 find a, a fair amount of Americana on there, um, so a little bit of hip hop, a little bit of classical, a little bit of everything. But uh, th those are you know the, the things that I listen to the most for enjoyment are um, are rock, soul, funk, R and B, jazz, um, uh, blues, that kind of thing. And um, so the the blog has, as I said, a lot of interviews. Uh, features, the occasional essay, um, and uh, lots and lots of reviews of albums. I'm also particularly interested, uh, as a uh, gentleman of a certain age, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm particularly interested in archival and uh, reissue projects. So uh, when something like, say, uh, you know, an album's worth of unreleased material by some semi-obscure band from the 60s comes out, well, I'm on it. Because that's that's 
kind of thing I really sink my teeth into. And sort of along those lines is this latest book that you've written about 415 Records. Maybe you could talk a bit about your interest in 415, your history, any knowledge you had about it, and why ultimately you wanted to tell their story. Back in the first half of the 1980s, um, I was a college student, and it just so happens that uh, where I went to school, Georgia State University, downtown Atlanta, was home to WRAS, which was at 100,000 watts, one of the most powerful uh, college radio stations in the country. They broke all manner of uh, artists that weren't getting airplay on commercial radio in those days. And so while a lot of people were listening to, you know, well, most people were listening to quote unquote mainstream album oriented rock and that kind of thing. Um, I was really getting into what we now in retrospect called college rock. And two albums in particular that were uh, big favorites of mine in those years happened to be on 415 from the uh, Columbia era of the label. Uh, Wire Train's second album, Between Two Words, and Translator's fourth album, Evening of the Harvest, which came out in 83 and 86, respectively. So I've been a fan of the uh, Columbia era 415 material since the, you know, the early part of the 80s, early mid part of the 80s. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so my interest began then, but nothing really happened with that for many, many, many decades. I guess it was maybe about 10 years ago, maybe less. Um, mm -hmm. I did some interviews with members of Translator when there was an archival re, uh, release of uh, some of their music. So my interest has continued and I have a bunch of those records. Now I have all of them uh, from that era. And um, uh, in late 2000, um, a reissue label called Liberation Hall put together some um, reissues and compilations of early 415 material from the time when uh, it, the, the label was a, a true uh, independent and not related uh, or connected to the, a major like Columbia. And when uh, those came out, I wrote a story about that for SF Weekly, an alt-weekly in the Bay Area uh, that I wrote regularly for. And that my interest thus peaked about right after the story came out, which was uh, in the Thanksgiving week issue, uh, I began pitching to publishers. And oddly enough, and this doesn't usually happen this way, by uh, Christmas time, I had a book deal. I guess I'm curious about like the nuts and bolts of like the writing and research process. How long did you work on the book? Well, as I said, you know, the, uh, you know, I, I got the, uh, a commitment from Hozak Publishing in uh, December of 20. And I thought to myself, uh, well, you know, here we are in the middle of the holidays. Now's not a good time to reach out to people. Uh, everybody's busy with, with family and so forth. So uh, once the New Year's was in the rearview mirror in very early January of last year, I started lining up interviews. I had done six for the magazine article. But in, in January of last year, I started lining up a bunch more. And in the first three months, January, February, and March of last year, I did 96 interviews. Wow. And uh, once that part of the project was complete, uh, I set about the task of writing. And I wrote the book in the second quarter of last year, uh, April, May, and June. And did you find that 
most people who are associated with the label, with Howie Klein, with that scene, were they happy to chat with you? To a person, almost everybody was. And uh, in, in many cases, uh, a lot of these individuals either hadn't been interviewed in three decades or more, or in a couple cases had never been interviewed, some of the really lesser known uh, bands. So uh, yeah, people were, were very interested uh, in, in sharing their stories. A couple of them expressed some uh, regret, some, uh, some embarrassment, some displeasure with some of what they had done back in the day, uh, musically and otherwise. But even in those cases, they were, uh, they were willing to open up and share their stories with me. I'm curious, just given the focus of this podcast on, on fanzines and rock criticism, did you consult any sort of period fanzines and magazines at the time then? Uh, a little bit. I talked to a couple of music journalists who had uh, written for uh, local papers back in the day. And most significantly, I, I spoke at some length with Ginger Coyote, who was uh, very much a uh, part of that scene and uh, was then and remains the editor of uh, Punk Globe, uh, a, a well-respected uh, Bay Area zine. Mm -hmm. So Howie Klein is, is, and we'll talk a lot about him in this chat, but Howie Klein, he's, he's kind of at the center of this book. He was the prime mover behind 415 Records. And even before he started the label, he'd lived a pretty interesting life. Can you talk a bit about some of his activities going back to his days at Stony Brook University? Right. Uh, when he was at Stony Brook, Stony Brook in uh, New York State, he was uh, on the uh, student council, we'll, we'll call it, and uh, was responsible for booking bands. He brought uh, Soft White Underbelly there, who were a local band, later much better known as Blue Oyster Cult. He brought The Doors. He, when he booked The Doors, um, they didn't have a record out yet. And so he got them for $400. And by the time the, the show happened, the, the, uh, their debut had been released and they were commanding much bigger sums for gigs. But uh, to their credit, they still did the gig for 400 bucks. Wow. Uh, he, he also booked the Fugs, the, uh, <laughs> you know, the uh, you know, Beat Poets as um, you know, sort of a less, le one might say, uh, a less musical version of the Mothers of Invention, kind of, um, but uh, more arty. They, um, he booked them for a dance and um, they, they did not go over well with some members of the <laughs> audience. Um, and uh, Howie was quite uh, impressed by the visceral reaction that uh, he, he got from that. So, so that was his background early on. Then he, uh, he went on, uh, I wouldn't necessarily call it a vision quest, but he toured uh, parts of the world that most people uh, in those days and these don't visit, uh, Afghanistan, Nepal, places like that. And um, when uh, he uh, returned to the West, uh, he decided to uh, move out to San Francisco. He, he just liked the, the, the scene out there more than what he found in New York City. And when he arrived there, he started um, DJing both at clubs and uh, for radio stations. And uh, that led pretty directly to uh, the, the, uh, the launching of 415, essentially. It, it may be harder for, for like young listeners today to appreciate how crucial that non-commercial radio was for fans of underground music and for bands themselves. 
Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, now we have, you know, for better and for worse, a lot of the barriers to entry, so to speak, are down. Anybody can uh, record an album because, you know, the technology is in the hands of, of pretty much anyone. Anyone can record an album, they can put it up on the internet and start telling people about it. Those kind of channels certainly didn't exist in the, uh, excuse me, in the late 70s and early 80s. If you wanted uh, to get a, a, a record out and have people hear it, uh, you had to get a record deal. And there weren't a lot of uh, indie labels. And what did exist um, really weren't focusing too much on what we'll call, uh, broadly speaking, punk and new wave. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and what was happening in, in the Bay Area is that um, some of the, the radio stations, especially the, the non-commercial ones, were realizing that there was kind of a, a growing interest in the sort of, again, it was a term that wasn't really used then, but alternative music, shall we say, mm -hmm. uh, things that weren't uh, Boston and REO Speedwagon and, and you know, whatever the, um, you know, Fleetwood Mac, the, the mega hit du jour. Um, there was a lot of that going on and a lot of it was, was homegrown. So uh, they reached out to Chris Knab, who was, uh, kind of developing a little bit of a reputation as a tastemaker because as owner of an independent record store called Aquarius Records, uh, he was getting a lot of these interesting import records from uh, England and uh, some local records occasionally. And uh, he had kind of a hip clientele. So he was asked to come in and uh, do a late night radio show to kind of service that, that part of the market. Uh, that you know the people who are interested in that very very quickly he he acknowledged hey you know i don't really have experience as a, a dj why don't i bring in uh along with me this regular customer uh, a guy named howie klein uh he knows this stuff even better and he can tell everybody kind of what's happening with these bands and so that uh, but that uh, what local bands at the time, you know, they didn't have record deals or anything like that. So they would, uh, and I don't think this is overstating the case, really, they, sometimes a lot of them would just set up a microphone in the middle of the room or, a, you know, a cassette player with a condenser microphone. They'd play and then they'd have this extremely low fidelity cassette tape and they would send that cassette into Howie and Chris. And to their credit, Howie and Chris played a lot of that music. And that was the way that a lot of local bands got heard on a wider level. It was ultimately Howie and Chris who started 415 together. What was the dynamic like between the two, as far as you can tell? Uh, well, Chris leveraged his uh, experience uh, with business. Neither of them really had a background, any kind of background or, or any sort of precedent or experience in running a record label, quote unquote. But um, Chris Knab was a businessman. You know, he was, he was running a record store, so he knew how to deal with distributors. Uh, you know, he knew kind of the retail side of things. And Howie uh, was, was and remains a, a, a born natural promoter. Um, both of them very much enthusiasts. And this, this is important. Both of them were really fans of the music first and foremost and that really colored everything that they did but uh in in terms of connecting with distributors and things like that that was pretty much uh the the side of things that uh, chris handled in the early days 
Whereas Howie was the one who did what we would now call uh, guerrilla marketing or relationship marketing, reaching out and connecting with college radio stations, independent record stores, things like that, both in the Bay Area and, and far beyond uh, around the country. And um, that's really kind of how the, the, the label sort of uh, did some things that would uh, influence the way that uh, independence operated going forward, that whole relationship marketing thing. It also sounds like they... I'm not going to say they're unscrupulous, but but they recognized quickly that they had to do things a certain way. For example, in your book, you mentioned how when they started the label and they tried to get distribution, all the distributors would say, well, yes, we're happy to distribute this, but only if you give us exclusive rights to distribute 415 product. And they made this promise again and again to, to every distributor. Uh, yes, they did. Yes. Offering them yeah, exclusive yeah. rights. But of course, they, none of the others were aware of what they right. the other labels. Exactly right. Um, you know, in, in this age of all kinds of information and data and intelligence and everything being available in real time at our fingertips, it's really hard to imagine that. But the, the, the individual markets, I hate to use that word over and over again, but the individual music scenes, they had a little bit of a sense of what was going on in other places, but certainly nothing like we do today. And, and that held true with uh, the kind of music that was being made too. While uh, a retailer in say uh, Denver would be completely unaware of what another independent retailer in say Atlanta was doing, uh, a band that was in Sacramento might have absolutely no idea what a lot of the indie bands coming out of New York City sounded like. So that sort of everything being broken in little pieces that were only sort of tenuously connected to one another um, was a, a characteristic of that, that period. One other interesting thing I noticed from your book is at least initially for, for the first, for the labels for several releases, Howie and Chris didn't put up money for actually recording bands. They simply offered to release this music. Yeah, that's right. Um, their, their first release on 415 uh, wasn't done as the quote-unquote inaugural release on a new label. It was just uh, they, they decided to, to press these records more or less as a favor for uh, the nuns. They, they liked the nuns. They liked their music. And uh, in the same way that the, uh, the, the radio shows had been a way of sort of supporting and nurturing the music scene and specifically the bands that they were both interested in. The, the next logical step was to help those bands get records out. And uh, so they, they did that, but they didn't have any kind of, um, you know, quiet benefactor in the background financing things. So they would, um, you know, they would find the best deal they could to get these things pressed and they would do everything as much on the cheap as they possibly could. But uh, fronting money for things like uh, recording sessions was just not in the cards. Luckily for them, they uh, had uh, an important friend and uh, in, in uh, David Kahn, a young budding producer at the time, who was working at a recording studio as a, as a night receptionist. And uh, he got a, an arrangement with the studio where they said, you know, late at night between say midnight and 8 a.m., if the studio is not otherwise booked, you can use it. 
And so a lot of when they did start recording things, they were able to do them for free. I'm curious to hear about the San Francisco scene. Most of the bands uh, that 415 released were local bands from the Bay Area. Can you talk a bit about the San Francisco Art Institute and the kind of special influence it had on the music scene at the time? Yeah, uh, the Art Institute was really a, a creative incubator, uh, kind of a very multidisciplinary kind of thing where, where art and uh, visuals and, and, and music all kind of overlapped one another. And a number of people in the uh, San Francisco punk and new wave scene came out of the Art Institute or were very much in its orbit. Uh, in particular, uh, Penelope Houston, who is not a 415 artist, but is uh, kind of a, a, a giant of the, the Bay Area punk scene as the, uh, the, the lead singer for the, uh, the Avengers. Uh, she was uh, an Art Institute uh, student. And then Deborah Ayal, who uh, a few years after being at the Institute uh, was the singer for um, Romeo Void and a number of members of the Mutants, sort of another sort of uh, art punk band, uh, they, they were in the Art Institute uh, orbit. Mm -hmm. It seems like it, it would be hard to imagine like the Mutants and these bands coming out of LA. Like it's, it's such a different ethos. You're exactly right. Uh, it's a very, very different scene. And um, it was it was remarkable to me, the number of people whom I interviewed who characterized the uh, San Francisco music scene of that time as uh, there are certain phrases that I heard over and over. One was provincial, not in a negative sense, but in the sense that I was mentioning a few moments ago about not really being connected to other scenes in other cities. Uh, another was non-competitive or certainly less competitive or commercially driven than uh, the LA scene. And uh, another expression that came up a lot was art for art's sake. Hmm. People weren't doing this to, although you know, the, most of them would have been quite happy to make the quote unquote big time. Uh, they were doing it as a means of, of a creative self-expression. And um, there, there was kind of an egalitarian character to the scene. A lot of these bands uh, shared bills with one another. They all knew each other. And the scene itself, uh, as, as you alluded to, was, was quite small and largely concentrated in a, in a small area in uh, San Francisco, the North Beach neighborhood, where there were a number of clubs. One of those clubs that comes up and, and I think has a chapter devoted to it in your book is Mabuhe Gardens. I'm curious how this family kind of friendly Filipino restaurant ended up being a venue of choice for met so many of these kind of fringy San Francisco bands, including 415 bands. It is a bit of a head scratcher, isn't it? Yeah, so the, the Mabuhe Gardens was a Filipino restaurant, as you said, and uh, the decision was made at uh, some point by uh, the owner, Nessa Kino, that uh, you know, when, when we close at night, uh, there the, you know, the, the building sits empty, why not uh, make use of that by opening it up to bands? And uh, Dirk Dirksen was the, more or less the, the, the guy who ran things in terms of booking the bands and uh, serving as sort of a, a, a punk new wave version of Bill Graham, you might even say. Hmm. 
it seems from from reading your book, it seems like that was the place to be, regardless of who was actually playing. It just seemed like, well, of course, it's it's a Thursday night, it's a Friday night. Like we're going to the Mab to see who is playing. It seemed to be much more about this scene rather than going to see a specific band. Yeah, I think it was. It, that's that's right. I mean, it was. There were certainly elements of both of that. But you're right. People would show up. It, it was enough of a trademark of quality that people knew they could show up there, and uh, you know, they would see a band that they liked. And if they didn't, quite honestly, they could uh, walk a few steps and go to uh, you know one of the other places. But the Mab was the central place. It was kind of ground zero for that scene. And um, they all they had. Uh, one night, I think every, I'm not sure how often they did it, but it was regularly, there was sort of a networking night where all the bands would show up and and uh, they would draw names out of a hat and they that's how a lot of the booking was done. 415 is, is a bit of a, I think I've seen it described in your book as like a new wave punk and, and it was fairly eclectic. I guess one, one thing that comes to mind, how wide... How wide was this gulf between new wave and punk? Was there, how important was that distinction at the time? You know, the answer to that really depends on whom you ask. Mm -hmm. um, I think if you talk to a dyed in the wool punker, they might say, oh, there was a huge canyon between punk and uh, these other things. And, you know, what we were doing was authentic and real and what they were doing was crass and commercial. Um, others would take a more nuanced view and say that, um, to some extent, punk and new wave were fairly fluid uh, marketing terms, just meant to sort of, you know, uh, stick a label on something. Uh, you take a band like SVT, were they punk? Were they new wave? Were they power pop? Were they kind of a stripped down answer to classic rock or mainstream rock you know it's hard to say um the nuns were definitely punk the the mutants were art punk uh the units were synth punk uh but then you know you you, you take uh, some of these other bands you know was the early romeo void material was that punk um you know it might have seemed so at the time and they might have characterized it that way but you listen to it now and there's certainly a timeless quality to it that fits into a, a, a larger, more mainstream kind of timeline. So again, depending on who you ask, you're gonna get different answers for that. I think that uh, 415, the character of the label reflected the, uh, the artists that were on it and vice versa, but there wasn't a 415 sound, so to speak, in the way that we think of a kind of a Motown sound or a Stax sound or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. Some of these bands sound absolutely nothing like some of the other bands. Would it be fair to say that the early bands on 415 had a bit more of a punk kind of edge to them? Like I'm thinking of like the Mutants, the Nuns, the Offs, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And part of that has to do with the fact that, you know, when we talk about the early period, we're talking about 1978, 79. Uh, that was what was happening in, again, quote unquote, alternative music. By the time you get around to 1980 or so, 
new wave or what was described as new wave, which was, you know, kind of a, a stripped down straight ahead rock and roll that followed on from uh, English pub rock and, um, uh, you know, a, a maybe with a little bit more emphasis on um, uh, melodic pop values and things like that, that began to be uh, sort of the, the coin of the realm. I mean, punk was certainly still happening. Uh, but even some of the bands that had been punk bands, like the, the Renegades, were pretty much straight ahead punk. But by the time they changed their name to Wire Train, they had uh, moved in a more melodic direction. Uh, Red Rockers, who were not a San Francisco band to begin with, they're originally from New Orleans. Their first album, Condition Red, which is one of the uh, rarities on the 415 label these days, uh, they were described as the American Clash. By the time of their second album, uh, they were making uh, MTV-friendly type music uh, and had a, a, a you know, a, a modest hit with a song called China, which doesn't sound anything like The Clash. You'd mentioned the band SBT. I'm curious to hear about some of the, like there's some classic rock pedigrees in certain 415 bands. So Jack Cassidy, who was the bass player for Jefferson Airplane, was the bass player for SBT. And there's the band Joe Allen and the Shapes, which featured Alan Powell, who played in Chicken Shack and Hawkwind. It's really like fascinating to hear about these classic rockers who are coming and reinventing themselves as these power pop new wave guys. Yeah, it's it's it was quite surprising. I I, I will admit to not knowing either of those stories before I began this project. Uh, SVT sounds absolutely nothing like Jefferson Airplane or uh, Hot Tuna. And uh, I can assure you that Joe, Joe Allen and the Shapes don't sound anything like Hawkwind. Um, <laughs> they, uh, and there were, there were others too. Um, the uh, Rocky Erickson, who had been uh, the, the lead, the, the, the front man of the 13th Floor Elevators, the original psychedelic band from Texas, yes. uh, he released an album on 415 and uh, it was produced by none other than Stu Cook, the bassist from Creedence Clearwater Revival. So there are all kinds of interesting connections from what we would consider the previous generation of uh, rock and rock and roll happening. And um, people like Paul Kantner, then of Jefferson Starship, were big supporters uh, of a lot of this, what was happening in the scene. Uh, Kantner was a, a often found at the MAB, checking out bands. And uh, Bill Graham, the impresario, was behind the scenes uh, as supportive to uh, the four and five acts as uh, he really could be, which was you know, a bit out of character because that kind of music was quite different from the uh, kind of artists that he was championing. It's interesting. Howie, so Howie's story, he, he fell hard for rock in the 1960s and the counterculture became a bit jaded in the 70s with how corporate rock was becoming and punk kind of rejuvenated his interest in, in rock music. So he, he had this disdain for corporate rock and was championing kind of weird underground sounds on his radio show. At the same time, he, he still had these ambitions for the label to um, grow it beyond just this uh, grassroots tiny thing 
he he didn't have any sort of problems dealing like he was, he had ambitions for growing it into uh, a label with major label connections. He did, although I'm not sure I would necessarily characterize it quite that way. Um, in in terms of ambitions, I think it, it was more of a fact of the the way things grew organically that. Um, he realized in the way we talked about that, you know, early on 415 wasn't paying for the, uh, uh, the uh, music to be recorded because it didn't have the money for that. As uh, things started to take off, Romeo Void in particular, their, uh, after their first album, then their EP came out, which was produced by Rico Kasich of the Cars. And uh, it started selling rather briskly. And the band was on tour and the, they were realizing that, you know, they, they were touring in a station wagon and they were, you know, sleeping on friends' couches in, in cities and things like that. They didn't really have anything in the way of what we would call tour support. And so Howie and Chris realized that the only way to come up with the, uh, they didn't have the wherewithal. So the only way to, to come up with that kind of support to take the artists to the next level was going to be to make a deal with a major. It was something that that uh, they both had serious reservations about, serious trepidation about doing, but it was inevitable. They knew they, they had to do it. So I don't know that it was so much an ambition to go big time as a, a realization that, hey, we've taken... You know, we're taking these artists as far as we're able on our non-existent budget to go beyond this. We're going to have to make a deal with the devil, as it were. What would you say changed for 415 after their association with CBS Columbia? So it was, it was basically a, a distribution deal? and, and Yes. How, how would you describe the association and what changed for the label functionally? Well, certainly in terms of their reach, you know, the, in terms of getting the records into not only independent record stores, but into chains, um, the association with, with Columbia, the time one of the very, very biggest labels back when there were several labels, um, that was, you know, that was a major thing. Um, you know, that, that did a lot to get that music uh, out into, you know, onto commercial radio and into, uh, commercial retail establishments. The, um, there was money, some money for tour support and things of that nature. What happened, and this is the way that it was characterized by a number of people that I interviewed both uh, inside and outside of the uh, Columbia infrastructure, was that Columbia's attitude was seen as, you know, this little sort of punk new wave uh, alternative scene that's happening, it looks kind of interesting. It's something that we really don't have any kind of a foothold in. Uh, if we buy our way into that, maybe we can uh, leverage that and get, uh, you know, sell, shift some units. So uh, they would, uh, I'm going to simplify for the, for the purposes of our discussion. Basically, <clears throat> excuse me, that we'll throw some money at it and see if it sells. And if it doesn't, we'll move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And that was essentially their approach. So while the association with uh, Columbia uh, theoretically brought larger budgets and things of that nature, their interest was fairly fleeting. They wanted uh, major success right away, or it, they would turn their attention back to the Billy Joels and the Bob Dylans of uh, their, their uh, stable. It sounds like they just didn't want to invest 
take the time to actually invest and come to understand like what this music is about, how to properly market it and kind of come to grips with it. I think it was not necessarily wanting to, and it was also not really having any clue how to market this. There, you know, the Columbia infrastructure was designed, built, and cultivated to market uh, on a on a mega level again, you know, on a mega level again to, you know, get the word out about the new Bob Dylan album or something like that. Marketing to college radio stations to sort of. Uh, uh, alternate, you know, alternative kind of venues and uh, market segments, they didn't really have any particular expertise in that area. And they, uh, on the, uh, the level of the uh, salespeople within the organization, they were often openly hostile to uh, Howie and uh, everything that uh, 415 was about. They just weren't interested. They didn't see it as worth their time. Uh, Chris was so disillusioned that he, uh, Maybe cashed out isn't the right word to use because there really wasn't much cash. But uh, you know, he he sold his uh, interest and and got out. Uh, and then uh, you know, a few years later, uh, Howie did the same thing. Howie went on to much bigger things within the corporate machinery um, at uh, Warner's. But um, yeah, th it was certainly frustrating for them and. Um, you know, certainly frustrating for the artists as well, because they had hopes of, hey, you know, we're on a major label now, you know, big things are going to happen. And um, for the most part, they didn't. Do you think with a more sympathetic label, things may have turned out different for some of these bands? At the start of our chat, you were mentioning Wire Train and Translator and Romeo Void. Do you think their fates may have been a little different had they been on... Um, on a smaller major that that knew how to handle this music and, and how to market it. You know, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, it, it seems that that may have been the case. Obviously it's impossible to know. Uh, I know a number of the artists that I interviewed who were uh, involved around the time of the, uh, four, of the four and five Columbia deal had wished that they had gone with a different label, not with Columbia. Um, I, I believe that how he made the decision he did because from an immediate financial standpoint for the bands, it seemed like the most expeditious way to go. But had they gone with uh, one of the, shall we say, hipper labels who had more of a metaphorical finger on the pulse of what was happening, the uh, things may have gone very differently, yeah. We've talked about how eclectic the lineup is, everything from like Rocky Erickson to Romeo Void to Wire Train to Mutants and uh, other bands we haven't mentioned at all too. What are some of the representative for you? Uh, what are some of your favorite releases on 415? What would you put on a mixtape for a friend? Uh, well, I mentioned uh, the two that have been favorites of mine since uh, they came out and that was uh, Wire Train's second album, Between Two Words, which is uh, has all the qualities of, their, that, that define their music along with some additional influences that didn't really surface before or after that. Um, I, I hear uh, the influence of uh, Robert Fripp and Brian Eno on that record, which mm -hmm. is pretty cool. Uh, uh, another one, the, uh, the, the third and fourth uh, translator albums, both produced by the great Ed Stasium, 
uh, who'd worked with the Ramones and Talking Heads and all kinds of other bands. Those two albums are really, really good. Uh, Translators records, uh, the four of them each sold fewer than the one before it. And for my money, each one was better than the one before it. So it, uh, mm. you know, that, that's um, other representative uh, records uh, would be the, 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 I'd call it a double A side, by Pearl Harbor and the Explosions. That's a really, really good new wave single with some really quirky out there guitar. Um, it, you know, shoehorned into a pop context and it works really, really well. The units are very, very unusual. Uh, two analog synthesizers and a real drummer making uh, music that was uh, very aggressive yet synthesizer based. The, the Rocky Erickson album, The Evil One, for my money, is the best thing he ever did. And I'm a fan of all of his work. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of gems throughout there. SVT is the, the band mentioned the most often by people I spoke to is the band that should have been, uh, that, that had the least success relative to how great they were. They burned brightly and briefly. Uh, there are quite a few. There were, um, you know, Every, every one of the, the bands that was on there did uh, something of note. A few of them only released one song on a compilation. A few only did uh, a single, two songs. A few did an EP, and then some did uh, a few albums. Uh, there's, there's value in all of it. And I think um, the, the last band signed to 415 uh, until December were uh, a band that I think was ahead of their time. And they never really had much success before they self-destructed they're a bit of a dance band that appealed to like the gay disco scene yeah but what was interesting is, is if, if you can imagine uh something like um depeche mode or human league and then add roaring electric guitars that's what they sounded like so mm -hmm. that was an interesting hybrid uh they had the the rock energy but definitely that high energy uh, disco vibe. So they were um, widely misunderstood and really despised within the uh, Columbia infrastructure. Nobody could figure out why Howie signed them or no, or no, Howie was really their only champion. Um, that record really holds up though. It sounds like there's a whole bunch of things kind of ripe for rediscovery. And I, I confess, I think, as I mentioned before, uh, I was familiar with just a few of the bands on the label. So I do about the Mutants, the Nuns, the Punky stuff, and of course, the Rocky Erickson album is one I really like. And it sounds like, I mean, no surprise that it was challenging to work with Rocky, um, having to get him out of a mental institution to record the vocals. It sounds like the album almost like didn't come off, but Stu Cook basically had to do like sampling and rearranging Rocky's vocals to synchronize them with the music. It's, it's a fascinating story. It really is. Uh, oddly enough, um, I first spoke to Stu Cook about all that back in 2007, uh, many, many, many years ago when, uh, when a documentary about Rocky Erickson was uh, coming out. Um, but yeah, it, uh, Stu, it, with very, very little production experience, uh, did uh, a yeoman job on that album and really did in, in an era when we had nothing like Pro Tools or any kind of uh, digital technology at all, uh, he was able to 
pieced together an album uh, from very uh, fragmentary pieces. The, the making of that album is, is, is very similar in a lot of ways to uh, what David Gilmore did when he produced uh, Sid Barrett's solo albums after Sid left Pink Floyd. You're gonna hate this question. Is there a moral to the 415 story? Or a bunch of morals that come to mind? There are probably a, there are a bunch of morals. I think one is, uh, is the old saw, be careful what you wish for. Um, because, you know, the, the association with uh, Columbia brought, a, you know, a, a lot of positives and a lot of negatives with it. But I, I, I think a, a larger moral might be, uh, you know, to, to follow your heart, to follow your muse, because that's what these bands did, especially early on. And that's really what Howie and Chris did. They weren't in it for the cash, which is, you know, a great coincidence because there really wasn't much in the way of cash. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of really, really good music came out of it. And it's because people did hold true to their uh, creative uh, aesthetic ideals. And it sounds like Howie, who went on to be an exec at other major labels, what he took from it was, okay, I see how CBS and Columbia runs a major label. I'm going to basically take this as how not to run a major label. He, he basically learned what not to do and applied those skills. And I think it's fair to say did things quite differently. He did. And uh, he went on to have quite a bit of success. He was uh, in, in, uh, connected uh, in, in significant ways to the success of U2 to uh, Ice-T and um, had things gone a little differently. Uh, uh, Andrea Bocelli, actually, uh, Bocelli was huge in Europe and uh, Howie was tried to break that record uh, here in the States. It didn't take off, but not for lack of trying. But yeah, Howie took a, a, a much more uh, artist-centered approach to things than uh, did his uh, counterparts at Columbia CBS. Thanks so much to Bill for chatting with us. His book, again, is Disturbing the Peace, 415 Records and the Rise of the New Wave. It's just gone into its second printing, and you can order it directly from Hozak Records and Books. You can also check out Bill's music writing at his website, musoscribe.com. And thanks to you for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at rockritpod. Always happy to hear from you. And just a heads up that our next episode will feature a chat with 415 Records co-founder Howie Klein, all about his adventures organizing shows in the 60s, his time in the counterculture, and his music writing adventures for various mags in the 1970s. It is going to be good. Music